horses, when they have a problem they can't solve themselves, are not above asking their human friends for help. (laughs) A study was conducted by Kobe University in Japan. And in this study, they looked at horses who had a bucket of carrots strategically placed in their view, but outside of their reach. And then they watched those horses as human beings came into the corral. They said that those horses would look to those human beings, that they would stare at them and then look over at the bucket and then stare at the human. They would bray more than normal. They would nudge or nuzzle the human as if to say, hey, a little help here. Don't you see there's some juicy carrots just right there? Can you help me out? They said that the horses didn't act that way in the control group where there were no carrots. But that horses, when they faced a problem they couldn't solve themselves, were willing to ask for help. Now, I don't consider any of you horses. But I will say this is something you have in common with those horses in Japan. And that is you will face a problem somewhere in this life that you won't be able to solve on your own. And you're going to need help. So often when we're struggling and we need help, we don't want to ask for it. I think that's why men struggle before the days of GPS to ask for help when we're driving and we're lost. (laughs) You know, it's just not going to happen. I think a man invented GPS just so he wouldn't have to ask for help. In fact, I wrote down from an article that actor Joe Hamm gave an interview in. He, he, if you probably know him, is the star of Mad Men. And in 2017, he gave an interview about his struggle, his personal struggle with alcohol addiction. And he had checked himself into rehab, and he confessed in the interview, quote, I'm certainly damaged. There's no denying it. When your mom dies when you're nine, and your dad dies when you're 20... And then you live on the couches of other people in their basements. I'm damaged. He said, we live in a world where to admit anything negative about yourself is seen as weakness. It's not weak to say, I need help. And you know, I think he's right. It is not weakness to say, I need help. To say that I can't face this alone. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to face this or overcome this problem in my life. And every Sunday when we gather, I am looking at people who I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that behind every heart is a hurt. There's a pain. There's a question. Can any of us have gone through this last week in our nation and not realize there are hurting people in this world. People who are struggling. People who are feeling helpless. People who feel hopeless. People who feel taken advantage of or maligned or hurt. There's a lot of hurt in our world. And we believers are not immune to pain in this life. We're all going to come to a point in life, either We're going to face a problem that's a financial problem or it's a physical problem 
or it's some relationship problem that we face and that we just don't know what to do. And we're going to find ourselves needing help. And I wonder if we'll be humble enough to call out for help. We're in a series looking at eight of the most popular psalms in the Old Testament Hebrew hymn book in the Bible. The the eight most favorite psalms of Christians. And today what I want to do is take you to a psalm that is all about trusting the God who helps. It's Psalm 121. And I'm going to encourage you to do something. I really want you to open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in that seat under you, and there's a New King James Version. I'll be preaching from the English Standard Version. Or if you have a phone, man, go download Version, Y-O-U Version Bible app. It's free. It is outstanding. Uh, it is awesome. And maybe just open up your Bible app to Psalm 121 because I want you to see with your own eyes what the writer of this song has to say to us in our times of need, when we need help, to whom do we turn for that help? And can we trust that help is available to us? In Psalm 121, we're going to read about trusting the God who is my help. And that's the title of our message, Trusting the God Who is My Help. Before we read, you may notice that the heading of your psalm that there's an inscription. It probably reads a psalm of ascent, which means to go up. Most Bible scholars believe that this is one of several psalms in the Hebrew hymn book that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they journeyed from their home to the city of Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. You always go up to Jerusalem. Geographically, But more than that, for the Hebrew people, you go up to Jerusalem because you go up spiritually. You go up to the temple of God, up into the presence of God. And many Bible scholars believe that this is a psalm that they would sing as they approach Jerusalem. Now, other Bible scholars believe that perhaps this was a psalm that would have been sung by believers who had gone up to Jerusalem but now were on their way home. So they had ascended to the city to worship God in the temple, and now they're on their way home, and they're facing the daunting journey ahead of them. They're facing the dangers of the journey, both physically and perhaps from uh, robbers or brigands, and they're concerned, and they're looking for help, and they're looking for safety, and they're looking for protection. And so the psalmist begins in Psalm 121, verse 1, in this way. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now maybe your translation reads it as a statement. Maybe that you're reading the King James Version today. I lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help? There were no punctuation marks in the ancient Hebrew. So good translators can see this in a couple of different ways. However, most uh, Hebrew scholars believe this is a statement and then a question. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? That's how the English Standard Version translates the Hebrew. And if this is true, that's a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem for worship, then perhaps he's saying, I look up into the hills where all of these pagan shrines are 
there and the Hebrew people had been tempted to stop short of Jerusalem, go up to one of these high places and worship a false god to get what you need. I look into the hills. Where does my help come from? Or maybe he's looking up to the hills and he knows one day they'll give way to the hill, the hill of Zion, the temple of God. Or as I said, perhaps he's going home. I've gone up to the temple, but now I'm going home and I look at these hills. Sometimes the hills can be a place of of delight and rest. Psalm 11, for example, talks about a person under pain and suffering problems. Why don't you take the wings of a bird and fly to the mountains? In other words, why don't you get away from your problems, go to the mountains? Anybody here want to go with me to the mountains? Let's just get away from our problems for a week and let's just go up to the mountains. I wouldn't mind doing that. Do you think the church would pay for that? I don't think they would, but... um... Sometimes the mountains are a place of delight. Other times the mountains in the Bible are portrayed as a place of danger. Remember in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, a Jewish man was traveling in the hills and in the mountains, and he's overtaken by robbers. They steal from him. They beat him to an inch of his life and leave him for dead in a ditch. It could be dangerous in those days to travel in those hills where people can lie and wait Uh, to uh, descend upon you. And so this psalmist, whatever his direction is, he's he's saying, I I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? But thankfully, he doesn't leave us to guess. In the next verse, he tells us where he finds help. His source of help is found in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He says, I look to the hills From where does my help come? I don't look to the hills for help. I look to the one who made the hills. He made the heaven and the earth. He made this universe. I look to the Lord. That's where my help comes from. The source of my help is in none other than the Lord himself. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all caps, it is speaking of God's personal name, Yahweh, the personal name of God. He is the covenant-keeping. He is the loyal, loving. He is the personal God. And the psalmist is saying, that's who I look to. I look to my covenant-keeping creator, And if he can speak this universe into existence by the power of his word, what problem do I have he cannot handle? My help comes from the Lord. That's important because often we look for help in all the wrong places. Nothing wrong with looking to other people. God wired us for relationships. But your ultimate source of help has to come from the Lord. It's okay to work hard and want to take care of yourself financially. But finances can come and finances can go. The economy can be roaring or the economy can be ruined. It's okay to look to your education. It's okay to look to friends. It's okay to look to organized religion. But ultimately, all of those things are incapable of meeting your real need for help. Your ultimate source for protection, for guidance, for safety, comes from the Lord himself. If we look at ourselves, we'll become discouraged. If we look at each other, we become dismayed. But if we will look up beyond our problems and with our eyes of faith, see our loyal covenant-keeping God, the creator of the universe, 
our faith will be strengthened. And that's what he's doing here. He's, he's saying, I look to the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When I was just a kid, I lived uh, for a while in Albany, Georgia. And that's how you say it if you're from South Georgia, Albany, Georgia. And uh, we lived there, and my dad was in construction, and the, the community in which we lived, there were several side alleys between homes and between our communities. And those alleys were unpaved, just the red Georgia clay with ditches on either side. And I remember one day as a little boy walking down one of those dirt roads, and I, I saw something in the ditch. I, I saw something buried in the mud. And all I could see was just the uh, crescent moon shape of a black disc. And it caught my eye, so I walked over to it, and I began to dig it out, and I discovered it was a record. You remember records, those vinyl, those vinyl things you had to put on a machine and put a needle on it, and it spun round and round? It was a record, and it was a record of Elvis Presley. On one side was the song, Little Sister, one of my favorite Presley songs. And I forgot what was on the other side, fame and fortune, something like that. But that was really my first exposure to Elvis. And I became an Elvis fan immediately. And then later I discovered that really some of Elvis' greatest songs were when he sang gospel songs. How great thou art, things like that. But there was a song in which... He's saying, and it starts with questions. Who made the mountains? I'll spare you the Elvis impersonation. Uh, I'm just going to read the lyrics. <laughs> Who made the mountains? Who made the trees? Who made the rivers flow to the sea? And who sends the rain when the earth is dry? Somebody bigger than you and I. Who made the flowers to bloom in the spring? Who made the song for the robins to sing? And who hung the moon in the starry sky? Somebody bigger than you and I. He lights the way when the road is long. He keeps you company. And with his love to guide you, he walks beside you just like he walks with me. When I am weary, filled with despair, who gives me courage to go on from there? And who gives me faith that will never die? Somebody bigger than you and I. And the psalmist is saying to us in Psalm 121, I look to the hills. Where am I going to find the source of help I need? I'll tell you, I look to someone bigger than you or I. I look to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he is there for me. If you're facing a problem this morning, and you're saying to yourself, where am I going to find the help that I need? Where on earth will I find the strength to go on? You need to look beyond heaven and earth. You need to look beyond this universe. You need to see God himself. And say with the psalmist, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's who is my help. Now I want you to note a shift from first person to second person pronouns between verses 1 and 2 and then verse 3. I mean, verses 1 and 2, I will lift up my, my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But, but notice verse 3. He, he shifts, second person. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Why the change here? And who is he talking to? 
Some people believe that this psalm was an antiphonal psalm, that you've got a worship leader like Craig, and he's leading this pilgrim band to Jerusalem, and the first two verses he would sing out to that congregation following him, and then verses 3 through 8, together with him, they would sing out their declaration of faith, or that he would sing this to them, preaching a sermon to them. That may be true, we don't know. But it could be that he's talking to himself. Have you ever had a talk to yourself? Have you ever had a talk with yourself? No, this is church. You can be honest. I think from time to time we all talk to ourselves. And listen, there's nothing wrong with talking to yourself as long as you don't talk trash talk to yourself. (laughs) Talking trash talk to yourself does no good. It doesn't help. Trash talk is when I say to myself, there's no hope for you. There's nobody to help you. You're all alone. Nobody cares. You're defeated. You're hopeless. You're helpless. That's trash talk, and that's not from God, and it's not of faith. No, sometimes we need to talk to ourselves, not trash talk. We need to talk truth talk to ourselves. And I think the psalmist is talking truth to himself. I look to the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. And then he says, let me tell you, soul. Let's have a talk in the inner man of my being about this God who watches over me. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. That's what you need to say to yourself. Not the trash talk, not that I'm helpless, not that nobody cares. You need to say to yourself, you need to listen up, Ricky. You need to listen up. God's on your side. And he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He won't let your foot slip. He's got this. You're going to have to trust him. He's talking to himself. And he's saying, he will not let your foot be moved. You may feel like everything's shaking under your feet with the new problem you're facing, but God will not let your foot be moved. And he who keeps you will not slumber. He continues that thought about slumbering in verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, I believe it is, you've got Elijah on Mount Carmel, and there's a confrontation between the one prophet of God and all of these other prophets of the false god Baal. And Elijah calls him to a test. Let's see which is the real God. You get together, you you get everything ready, and you start praying to your God for this sacrifice for your God, Baal, to send down fire from heaven. Whichever God sends fire, we'll know that's the true living God. So the prophets of Baal, man, they dance around that altar. They pray, they chant, they sing, they cut themselves. Nothing, nada. That's Hebrew for nothing happens. It's not really, but... Spanish. That's Spanish for not. Okay, is that right? Okay. We'll ask almost after the service. <laughs> he may say, why don't you just keep preaching English, Pastor? <laughs> Nothing happens. And Elijah, he starts taunting the prophets of Baal. Hey, maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe he's just falling asleep. That's why he's not hearing your prayers. And then ultimately, God sends down fire. And he's proven to be the one true living God. And the psalmist would say, that's my God. My God's not asleep. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He who keeps Israel will not 
fall asleep. He won't even doze off on you. He won't slumber. Sometimes when I go home, not, not sometimes, most often when I go home from church on Sundays, I mean, I get here a little after 7 o'clock in the morning, I stay till 12.30, I'm standing the whole time, I'm talking the whole time, I'm shaking hands, I'm preaching, I'm praying with people, I'm making all my rounds as best I can, and by the time I get home, I am I'm just exhausted. So I eat lunch, and I'm just ready to hang out with my family for a little while, but invariably, I'll sit in my recliner and my eyes get heavier by the second. And it's not uncommon for me to kind of doze in my recliner while all the family's there. And then I, I kind of realize, and I look, and Donna and Joshua and Casey and Caleb are all looking at me in silence. And I go, oh, oh, were y'all talking to me? I, I didn't hear it. <laughs> I was dozing. I didn't hear a thing you said. And they go, Dad! And they have to repeat themselves. And then sometimes I'm just flat out asleep. World War III could break out. I would not know. And the psalmist says, that is not your God. You will never come to him in prayer in your moment of need to find God dozing off. You will never hear God say, oh, what? Were you talking to me? I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. You'll never find God asleep. No, he is always awake. He is always aware of you. He is always available to you. No matter what time, day, or night, he's on the job. He's not sleeping on the job. Never does he sleep. And then notice something else. In verses 3, 4, and then we'll see in verses 5, 7, and 8, there's a word that the English, English Standard Version translates keeps or keep or keeper. Maybe your translation translates that Hebrew word shomar as watches over or keeps. The word in the Hebrew means one who protects. And, it, and we hear in uh, verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved, he who keeps you. He who shamar, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who shamar Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Look at verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. This word is repeated several times in this one psalm. And it's repeated for emphasis that God is your keeper. God is your protector. God is your security. God is your bodyguard. God is there watching over you. You never face a problem alone. He is always there. In fact, verse 5 says that the Lord is your keeper. And one thing that he does is he becomes shade for you. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So the sun is blasting down on you, but the Lord provides you shade. Your problems are bearing down on you, but the Lord gives you a place where you come and you find shade and respite and peace. He continues with the idea of sun. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day. The psalmist knew that in that Palestinian heat with the glaring sun beating down on you, you could suffer heat stroke. We in Florida know all about that as well, right? Man, it can get hot when you're out there working and toiling under the sun. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You say, well, I get sunstroke, but what does it mean that the moon won't strike me by night? Some people, some people say, well, this means that you won't suffer 
heat exhaustion during the day and you won't lose your mind and become a lunatic at night. That's what the word luna, lunar means. There's a reason the word lunatic is in the Bible. I mean, I think it's mainly, mostly just our observation from our human perspective. I don't know if there's any scientific proof behind it, but ask anyone in law enforcement or medical you, you don't want to be in ER or out on the streets at a full moon. It just things get crazy. Or school on a full moon, maybe if you're a teacher. I think really probably what the psalmist is saying is he's using opposites to make an emphasis. He's saying you won't be struck down with heat stroke in the day, nor will you die of hypothermia in the night when the moon rises and the temperatures fall. And if that is true in the opposites, then it's true in everything in between. No matter what you are facing, God is watching over you. God is protecting you. God is guarding you. God is giving you the shade you need to withstand the problem that you're facing. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. From this time forth and forevermore. It's an amazing thing that God not only promises to keep you from all evil and to guard your very life, but He promises that no matter what you do and where you go, you're going out, you're coming in. Now, tomorrow, and even into eternity, from this time forth and forevermore, He will keep you. Now, there are some pretty bold promises made in Psalm 121. And if you read these at first glance, you will say, Is God making a guarantee of a problem-free life? If you read Psalm 121 in isolation, you will say, Wait a minute, he, he, He's promising me a problem-free life. He, he's promising me a life without hurt. It seems like he's saying, hey, with me on your side, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Is that what he's saying? He will not let your foot be moved. He will be your shade from harm. He will keep you from all evil. He will protect your life. You're going out. You're coming in now and forever. And if that's how you interpret Psalm 121, your faith is going to be shaken because you're going to say, this does not jive with my personal experience because I believe in God but I'm also hurting and I'm facing problems well if you think Psalm 121 is a guarantee of a problem free life you've misread it Psalm 121 presupposes there are going to be times in your life you need help so there's no guarantee here that you're going to live a problem-free life. Being a follower of Jesus does not immunize you from the problems of life. Even Christians get sick like everyone else, and we lose our jobs like everyone else, and we struggle financially like everyone else. Our, faith, our health fails us like everyone else. We're betrayed by friends like other people are. And we will die like other people unless Jesus returns first. Psalm 121 presupposes you're going to need help in your life. And it's telling you that the problems of your life cannot stop God's purpose for your life. 
God's purpose was not that you get through this life without any pain or trials or hardship. No, God's purpose is to redeem you from your sin, make you more like Jesus in the meantime, and then one day let you spend eternity with him. And nothing can stop God's purpose in your life. Nothing can steal your salvation. Nothing can stop the Holy Spirit's work in your life to make you more like Jesus. And nothing can keep you out of the presence of God in this life or in the life to come. And in the meantime, you may struggle. How would Joseph in the book of Genesis read Psalm 121? He will not let your foot be moved. As he's there in the muck and mire of a pit left for dead by his own brothers, eventually sold into slavery, bought by an Egyptian named Potiphar, wrongly accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. How would he read Psalm 121? I'll tell you how he would read it. It's what he declared in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, years and years later as his brothers came before him, And now he's second in command in Egypt. And he said, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. But what you meant for evil, God used for good. Joseph would say, based on Psalm 121, the problems of my life could not stop the Lord's purpose in my life. How would the Apostle Paul read Psalm 121? The greatest missionary the church has ever known reached the whole known world of his day with the gospel. The majority of the letters in your New Testament were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through this once murderer turned missionary, persecutor turned preacher. Did he have it easy when he came to faith in Jesus? No. He declared in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from evil, from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews and the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. And I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And on top of all of this, I've got the constant burden of caring for the churches. How would he read Psalm 121? He would read it this way. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, penned by that same man who suffered so much. God makes all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Paul would say, the problems of my life cannot stop the purpose of the Lord in my life. And how would Jesus read Psalm 121? There he is on that night that he was betrayed. 
praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and three times he falls on his face before his Father in heaven, and he pleads, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. God, if there's any other way to save this world than to be rejected by you and to die as a sacrifice for sin, if it's possible. But he closed all three of those prayers in the same way. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Nevertheless, your purpose in my life be done. No wonder, no wonder he went to that cross of Calvary and he never complained. But he went to the cross of Calvary and he died there because he knew that on the other side of a crown of thorns was a crown of life. On the other side of groaning was glory. On the other side of men who rejected him would be you who would receive him as personal Lord and Savior. No wonder the resurrection was the last word. And no wonder the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 says to hurting, discouraged Christians, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. From heaven today, at the right hand of the Father, in glory and in triumph, having endured all that this world could throw at him, Jesus would speak to you. The problems of your life cannot stop the Lord's purpose for your life. Just look at what the Father did in me. In the meantime, trust in the God who is your help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 121 that reminds us that the problems of my life cannot stop the Lord's purpose in my life. Your purpose of saving me and forgiving me and us from our sin. The purpose of sanctifying us and making us more like your son, Jesus. And the purpose of of being with us in this life and letting us be with you forever in the life to come. God, we thank you this morning for the promise of your word. Help us when we are facing the problems of this life to trust in the God who is our help. The one true living covenant-keeping creator of this world and who's bigger than any problem we face. Father, there could be someone here who has never even received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray this morning they would do so. They would turn from their sin and believe on him who died for them on the cross and who rose from the dead and who promises to give them forgiveness and eternal life, who promises to give them life and life more abundantly than they could ever imagine if they would trust him as their Lord and their Savior. So, Father, I pray that right now they would do that today. And, God, whatever it is that you would have us to do to take our next step in our journey with you, let us do it by faith 
in obedience now. Not waiting. Not putting it off. Father, there's someone that needs to join the church to get saved, to get baptized, to join a group, to volunteer, to serve, to surrender their life to serving you in ministry. God, whatever it is, help us to take this next step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.